This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Road Studios in the crap part of Soho, and my kitchen counter, Rog, for the Monday morning after the weekend before in the crap part of West Hollywood, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. We back! Like Hootie and the Bluefish, like <laughs> Arsenal Football Club. A lot of football, so much of it good, some of it genuinely life-threatening. But we will get to Derby Day in a moment. Let's jump right off the top with the good news, Dave. Well, the goodish news, let's not exaggerate. The United States men's team, they're no longer a rudderless, leaderless, inert gas. Yes, Rog, still trying to figure out which one of us is Hootie, which one of us is the blowfish. But yes, Rog, right after Arsenal versus Spurs, thrilling finish. US soccer, almost bearing the news, probably waiting for the end of that game, in truth, announced the oft-rumoured, long-awaited, somewhat anticlimactic, somewhat anticlimactic appointment of Greg Berhalter, a certain Greg with two Gs. Berhalter, the 45-year-old former Columbus manager, played 44 times for the U.S. men's national team between 94 and 2006, making him the first man to both play for the U.S. in a World Cup and manage them. This is a, this is a shock to Jürgen, because he sort of feels like playing for Germany, then managing Germany. I mean, the U.S. was the same thing. Greg's brother, this is an interesting twist, Rog, is U.S. soccer's chief commercial officer, part of the U.S. soccer executive. Is his brother Sunil Galati? No, I don't think it is. I don't think By the way, this is my favourite thing about the hire, that there's a little bit of potential nepotism or scandal involved. Greg G- will lead the team into their January camp, ending 14 months of stasis for the US stasis. men's national team. How are you feeling about this, Rogelio? And can you, can you eliminate your feelings about the Merseyside derby and just try and deal head-on with the appointment of Greg G- G- Berhalter? Oh, Greg... G- Yep, three G's in there, Dave. Burhalter, because he spells Greg like, like a bit like Snoop Dogg spells dog. I think is where his parents got it from. I'm sure they're like our favourite musical performer is Mr. Snoop Dogg. Mr. Snoop Doggy Dog. <laughs> yeah. So let's not call him Greg because that's a common name. Anyway, Greg is the safe, unglamorous. He's the insider pick. Yeah, I'll say this. He's a good. He's a. He's a. He's a very good American soccer coach, which is it's akin to saying someone's a, an excellent English basketball player. I mean, it's, it's not great. It's not elite in the wider scheme of things. And yes, it, it's quite befuddling as to why it took 14 long, dark months to appoint him. So I think that makes things feel a little more underwhelming than they should. I'm trying to focus on the positive in life, as you know, Dave. It's not working very well. But I'll say <laughs> it's a relief. It's a relief just the same. What did you make of it? I mean, look, I think that there are a lot of people are fussing about the fact that his brother is on the executive. I, that doesn't bother me at all. U.S. soccer has been a small band of brothers and families have got involved in it. And so the Burhalter family is passionate about soccer. Great. They're both you know, working around to make U.S. soccer, U.S. men's national team better. Great. I'm, I'm not going to be critical of that. I'm sure that U.S. soccer, you know, made sure that that wasn't part of the hiring process. The optics look bad, but the optics never matter to me as much as the actual reality. And Greg Burhalter might well be the right choice. And I think we've got to give him time and see what happens. I think it's great that we've got a pick. I think actually his background is sort of right for U.S. soccer. He's the right age to relate to the players. He's actually played on the field. He's experienced the challenges of playing in CONCACAF qualifying. He's, he's represented 
um, the US all over the world. He understands the MLS players. He understands Europe. He's coached over there. I think he's got a, dare I say it, a Southgatean-like background. Oh, interesting. Southgate without the waistcoat, without the hair. But at the same time... And two Gs, not South good good I don't just bring one G to the job. I bring three, Greg, <laughs> three Gs. I will say... I mean, I'm interested to hear what you think. You hire a lot of people. You're involved in big corporate hires. I mean, you understand process. I, I, I am, you know, thinking about the outcome. It does. You know, 14 months, big drum roll. It feels a bit like, or it reminded me when this happened. I thought about this last week as news leaked out. A bit like the unveiling of the, of the Segway scooter back in 2001. You know, I, I know it's hard to remember life before the Segway scooter listeners, but what I remember about that launch is that it was rumored for months. I think it even had a code name, my favorite kind of code name. I think the code name was Ginger. And the talk was that Ginger, we can't tell you what Ginger is, but it's going to change everything. It's going to change civilization. It's going to revolutionize how we travel. Cities will be laid out differently because of Ginger. I remember there was a VC, I can't remember who the hell it was. I remember watching on television with a serious face saying, Ginger is going to be bigger than the internet. I got so excited and I watched live the Segway press conference where they unveiled it. What was this thing that was going to change everything? They pulled off a sheet. And there it was, like just the whole Paul Blart Mall cop of it all. And I was like, is that it? Is that, is that, is that really, is that really all you've got after all this? And it, and it feels a bit of the same with, with Greg Berhalter. Uh, how does it happen though? First American to manage in Europe. Hello to all our listeners in Harmaby in the second division. Uh, Columbus four times in five years, playing attractive, attacking, confident possession football on a low budget. But to me, he feels very safe, very risk averse, po possibly not quite as engaging of the Latin footballer that is our future um, as could be. But you understand how these hires are made from the inside. I mean, look, from the outside, I think we always expect organizations, whether it's our favorite sports teams when they're drafting or you know, movie studios or big banks or, or in the government when they're like putting together, you know, cabinet positions. We expect there to be like this completely democratic, thought out process where everyone's considered and then the shortlist becomes shorter and shorter and shorter and everybody's interviewed equally. And then with no bias whatsoever, the final person is hired. And on the whole, that's not how hiring, how drafting is ever done. What? No, you hear organizations all the time saying, yeah, we got our man. They have very early on. They might analyze every pick on the board They've got the QB that they want, QB1. They've got the person that they want. And they'll they'll look at a couple of running backs and a few offensive linemen. And maybe Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, maybe a kicker. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just joking about the kicker. And then in the end, they decide to go and get their person. When you read the, the list of qualifications, it kind of had to be Greg good 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 Berhalter. Almost the only thing they didn't say is you've got to have an extra consonant in your name that doesn't really need to be there. That was the only one. By the way, that was probably there, but they thought, oh, we better not say that or that we'll give away the whole thing. And I think more than just what the qualifications were. I think their person was Greg Berhalter. They did go through something of a process to get him. Who knows what was going behind the scenes, whether or not Greg Berhalter was actually sure that he wanted the job. I think certainly when he got into a season with the Columbus crew, he, wasn't, he wanted to focus on that and didn't want to talk about it from what one hears. But in the end, does any of this process matter if Greg Berhalter ends up taking the US to the uh, World Cup, having the US play you know, a better form of soccer and for us to see these young players, you know, develop and blossom into our next generation.
Yeah, and you know, I, I'm sure just listening to the requirements that you've revealed exclusively on this podcast, I'm sure Juan Carlos Osorio was probably furious. He's probably left the interview room being, but I've got three O's. <laughs> I have three O's. And they're like, not good enough. That's a vowel. Oh, oh, Juan Carlos. Oh, Juan Carlos. Tata Martino's like, I have three A's. They're like, yeah, but you don't speak English. It's uh, They're just like, three A's, bad. Three yeah. O's, terrible. We were looking for guttural consonants. Oh, I'll say what it does. You talk about the young players. It does cement Christian Pulisic as the face of US soccer for the next cycle. I mean, he is our everything. Um, you know, the, the last cycle we qualified, it was Jurgen Klinsmann who got the Time magazine covers. Do you mean Christian and Pulisic? <laughs> <laughs> it means, it, it, Jurgen was the one who like did the 60 minutes. He was the... Triple G is not going to be the the wider media interest catch this time around. Pulisic has got more leverage. What he wants, what he feels, how he understands the game, he has the, all the leverage. Probably more than any player in the modern period. And you know, producer J Dub's chatting to him. He's thinking about the McKinneys, the Sargents, um, Tyler Adams now at Red Bull Leipzig, the Tim Weyers. They're going to come from elite coaching in Europe. He is going to have to bring it. He is going to have to bring it, Greg. Um, is going to have to bring it to win them over. Roger, can I just say something yeah. to that, though? Because I think that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people are thinking that. But let's... Southgate, I think only insane British pundits think that Southgate hasn't done a good job with England. Southgate is not an elite coach on the level of Poch or Jurgen Klopp or, you know... or Marco yeah, Silva. Or, or Marco even Marco Silva, Rog. He's not an elite coach on that level. And yet... He's been able to be very, very successful with a national team set up in terms of relating to the side, having a way that England go and play soccer. I'm not saying, believe me, this would be the height of arrogance to suggest that the US need to go and look for England to go and be the model. That's the kind of stuff that drives US soccer pundits crazy. But I think that holding him to the standard of, oh, but when we compare him to the elite international soccer managers, you know, the world of international soccer is littered of international, you know, representational soccer is mediocrity with incredibly successful managers on club level who failed with national teams there are huge club managers who when they coached their national teams did very poorly yeah i mean international football this is a really important it is a strange beast and i i, I think about greg berhalter he's not the most dazzling is he the most tactically astute gentleman in elite football probably not but international football is a strange beast. The managers don't, and this is important to know, they don't have as much influence on their teams as club coaches who have their players yes. training day in, day out. International managers have their players for a couple of training sessions, then game day, then they're gone. Hence, you've got lesser managers on tiny teams who excel if the team culture, and ultimately, it's the team culture I care about, is right. You see Chris Coleman leading Wales into the Euro 2016 semi-final. You see Jorge Luis Pinto taking Costa Rica on a daring run into the World Cup quarterfinals in 2014. You know, the US team has real problems. When you speak to many of the younger players right now, they talk openly how difficult it has been over the past 13, 14 months of purgatory to play on this team. They almost say, I dreaded a call-up, which you never hear US players say. So here's what I'd say. Let's not allow the frustration with the process, the stasis over the past 14 months, soil Burhalter. He's now the manager. Um, and I truly believe this from my Everton days. We've got to get behind him. When, when, when Everton were perennially struggling with mediocre players and the jovial but truly terrible Scottish manager, Walter Smith, and you'd arrive at Goodison feeling condemned, doomed, but about 20 minutes before kickoff, 
maybe a last pint in the pub with the mood low, someone, a, some, some character was guaranteed to shout out, get behind the lads, which meant stop your moaning. The manager is the manager. The team is the team. The game's about to go down. We have no other option than to give the team we love our full-throated support. So let's say that, Davo. Greg Berhalter, let's get behind the lads. No, Rog, the T-shirt is go get behind Greg. Go. <laughs> go get behind Greg. Go. Go get behind Greg. Go. I think I can hear the chant right now. I can hear it. Yeah, we're going to destroy these teams with those guttural consonants. <laughs> They're not going to know what to do with themselves when they see that team yeah. sheet. I heartily agree with you, Roger. I don't know what's going wrong with this pod, but I absolutely agree with everything you just said there. Uh, some Men in Blazers news and notes now. We're taping on a Monday, Roger. It's Monday morning. We've just got out of boxing because we got a crazy week this week. Bonkers. And we wanted to get ahead of it. We're taping shows with Rebecca Lua, with David Veer, and a very special secret guest who we can't talk about, Rog. And it all starts the Men in Blazers show's return this Wednesday at 5.30pm Eastern Time on NBCSN with special guest, only Hollywood director and massive Palace fan, Paul Greengrass. You know him from the Jason Bourne series, Captain Phillips. We know him as a massive, massive Palace fan. Biggest Palace fan in Hollywood, Dave. And it is a, is a beautiful interview. What he says about the role of football in his life and the role Palace play, they are lessons to live by. I cannot, I really can't wait for, for you GFOPs to, to see it. We also want to announce our favourite entry in our hashtag MIB Pro Fro contest, in which 10 GFOPs are winning one of the most <laughs> iconic football jerseys of all time, the old school Eintracht Braunschweig shirt, the first football jersey in history to bear a sponsor. And that sponsor just happened to be the mighty Jägermeister, a beautiful jersey that the great Paul Breitner, the German maestro known as Der Afro, used to rock back in the 1970s. As you'll recall, we put pictures of Mr. Breitner's fro and just for good vibes, one of your old fro's, Rog, on meninblazers.com. We've asked GFOPs to Photoshop those fro's onto anything and send them to us. We received hundreds of phenomenal entries, but our favorite of the lot was GFOP Alicia Depew, who submitted what she called the Vladimir Putin collection. Think shirtless <laughs> Putin on horseback with Roger's old fro. All the winners are up on menandblazers.com. Those amazing jerseys are on their way as we speak. He's slightly less menacing with my fro on in Vladimir Putin. I will say yeah. that. And I want to thank Jägermeister. We love this competition. And honestly, loved unearthing that secret nugget of footballing history with that beautiful jersey, which connects the exclamation point in a glass that we love to a rich footballing tradition. We've got a packed show, Roger. We're going to head down to Flavortown while recapping Triple D Derby Day, including Fulham manager Claudio Ranieri's <laughs> return to Chelsea in the West London Derby. A salty six-goal thriller between North London rivals Arsenal and Tottenham and a Merseyside affair that ended in bizarre... Self-inflicted, Everton heartbreak, a loss so cruel, Rog. I promise I'm not even going to pat your head, uh, Rog. Repression is a great, great mental tool, listeners. Should we start with a toast? Yeah, go with a toast, Rog. I want to pour out this bud and say I've got a huge respect to all you GFOPs who made the quite brilliant decision to travel over to Britain for a Premier League weekend to watch the derbies in person. We were really inundated uh, with photos of you running all over uh, Britain, especially you at Quinn Welsh, who shot over on impulse five days before the derby. You just decided you want to go uh, and see the Blues. I hope you are not scarred for life. Your photos looked absolutely joyous, well, until the match kicked off anyway. And it's in that regard, I want to make my toast. I want to raise this bud to sports because sports, Davo, I realise this weekend, they're just the worst. 
I mean, really, just the worst. I was yesterday, just yesterday, within the span of five hours, I was devastated. Laid low, just brought to dark levels twice, not once, twice, once by Everton, then by the Chicago Bears. And my conclusion is I need new hobbies. I also need your thoughts and prayers, dear listeners. Georgia fans, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about too. Spurs fans, I'm raising it in your direction. Because what I also realized when I came through the other side, the glory of sport is that you experience deep pain, deep trauma. But then you just get to walk away from the crash unscathed, ready to go again. Just, oh, you always, always reload that case for optimism. So I raise this beer, Bud Fam, Blood Fam, to feeling alive. Not just feeling alive, but those of you who are listening to us in double speed, you must be feeling doubly alive at Stall Porfer. Thank you for updating everyone who listens to Dave O and me at 1.5 and 2 point speed. At Stall Porfer says, Dave O, I listen to Men in Blazers at double speed. It's not the fast speed that sounds funny as much as having to return to half speed after listening to double X for a while. Dave O sounds like a tired Noel Fielding at double speed while you, Rog, complete the transformation into Patrick Stewart. Oh, I'll, t- <laughs> I'll take that. I'll bite your hand off for Patrick Stewart. Arsenal for Tottenham 2, a melange of passion, quality tactics and referee Mike Dean from which no one could look away. Arsenal jumped out to a 10th-minute lead behind an Aubameyang penalty, but Spurs hit back, scoring twice within the span of four minutes. First with an Eric Dyer high-speed header, bang on the half-hour mark, and then with a Harry Kane penalty given after Sun went down under the weight, or maybe the wind of a Rob Holding challenge. I thought it was a penalty. But after introducing Aaron Ramsey and Alexandra Lacazette at halftime, Unai Emery's men were undeniably the better side. Ramsey assisted Ober for his second of the game on 56 minutes. Laka hit from range on 74 minutes. Odd goal. And that Uruguayan super featherweight Lucas Torreira made it four. Arsenal leapfrog Spurs oh. into fourth. They've not lost in 19 games in all competitions. We've got our Arsenal back, Davo. Oh, what a game. Can we just start off by applauding both teams? Both remarkable football teams. Skill, passion, total chaos. Just a magnificent game. I mean, it was a game I just hope so many of you had even your your most soccer-hating friends to watch because it would just make anyone who loves sports fall in love with Premier League football. Unai Emery. First North London derby, hats off to you, entering on an 18-game unbeaten streak. Oh, and they began as if they had no intention at all uh, of threatening that record. Spurs, difficult week, a lot of games, big games, sluggish, sleepy, nervy at the outset, bit of a mess, as if their morale had been eviscerated by pre-game news that the man they were banking on for three certain points, Meza Ozil, was out with back spasms probably caused by the prospect of an afternoon rotting on the Arsenal bench. But when, Davo, did you last see the Emirates crackling with energy like this? It was amazing. And, you know, we're saying we've got our Arsenal back, but there were elements of this Arsenal performance and the way that they just destroyed Tottenham in that second half that showed a level of grit, of consistency. Fight. Of fight, of just, like, toughness. It wasn't just, like, pretty football, Rog. It was toughness. And it was just a level of passion that is, uh, it was really something special. Yeah, I mean, they began from the off, storming down the flanks, optimistically. And it paid off for Tongan, back after two months, quickly made his presence felt, raised his arm like, like one of those students in that Wisconsin high school prom photo. 
gave away a crazy handball. I mean, a crazy one. Eight minutes, 22. It was one of those plays you watch over and over again with wonder in a massive game, in a massive moment, and you say, Jan Vertonghen, why did you do that? Why did he do it, Dave? There was a big handball like this in the World Cup. Oh, it's Booteng in the World Cup. Remember that one? And I think nearly always what you see in these, sometimes the bizarre ones are when there's no contact around. But what I'm, I'm increasingly seeing is there's contact. And then it just becomes about, to me, maybe about sheer bloody-minded competitiveness, that I don't care if I have to cheat right now. I'm not going to let you beat me to that header. I'm not going to let you jostle me. You know, you told the story on the pod either last week or the week before that in rugby, after you got injured, you used to fake tackle people, that you used to pretend to make tackles when actually you weren't really trying to make a tackle. You became an expert at faking a tackle. It's so funny because I was thinking about my own experience. It's, I remember playing in one game where I was playing against an opposing fly half who I just couldn't touch. He just had that sidestep. He had that movement. I couldn't get anywhere near him. And eventually, I just started tackling him long after he'd released the ball because it was the only time when I could get him. I just wanted to tackle him so badly. I didn't care that it was going to be a penalty. I didn't care that I was tackling him like literally seconds after he'd already released the ball. I just wanted to tackle him. And maybe it's that same kind of thing that I just want to be. I'm getting jostled. I'm back. I just want to win this. And I don't care what I have to do to go and win it. I don't know. I don't know. Vertonghen, he's Belgian. Who understands Belgians, Rog? Oh, he just wouldn't want to make sure young Foyt know he was not the only one who could give away erratic penalties. Whatever the reason was, Obama Yang converted nine Premier League goals at that point, scored from nine shots on target. And Arsenal just seemed so dominant. I mean, but then the game flipped on its head. Not for the last time, dear listeners. First Spurs free kick. A flick from the direwolf at the near post. We the kings of the north! of London. An amazing goal, an amazing celebration right in front of the Arsenal fans. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting. It, we should say, Leno, a bit embarrassed, tried to spoon the ball but could only usher it into his own net. Should have used his stiff, strong wrist like Vertonghen. <laughs> there was aggro when Dyer uh, celebrated in front of the Arsenal fans. And I've got to credit Arsenal because they didn't used to fight back when teams kind of mocked them on their own turf. And that is when I realised something very different is going on in the Unai Emery era, that these players have been inculcated with a spine, with a fight. You don't mug us off on our home turf. And it suddenly felt like a proper tasty North London derby again, post-Venger, where both teams were evenly matched in terms of their weight class and everything was possible. Within three minutes, 55, it would get worse for Arsenal. Was it? Dave out a penalty. Was it not a penalty? Rob holding on Son. I've said this so many times. You've seen him given. You've seen him not given. It was given. It was, I would say, a naive challenge uh, by holding on Son in that position. And he went down. And I know we're all like, oh, he didn't need to go down. He dived. But watch that at regular speed. At pace. Watch that at pace and see if you could have stayed on your feet. Especially those of you listening in double time onto yeah, our absolutely. podcast. Watch it. Watch it because it is a double time move. I think, I think honestly, the howling of the Arsenal fans was almost adopting the position that, oh my God, we're going to lose. We need to, we need to scream about something. Holding catchings him, let's say flickeringly, there was contact. Let's call it a brutal grazing. Was it sufficient to bring down a grown man at pace? I'm not quite sure. Our everyday dude tweeted us, Son's shoelaces must be in so much pain right now. And I think at the moment, I thought it depends who you support. There was just enough contact for Spurs fans to see Stone Cold penalty and for Arsenal fans to bellow that they were hard done to. But we should say this, referee Mike Dean, he loves a penalty. Oh, loves the Premier it. League statistician at Oily Sailor, 
amazing stat. Mike Dean has awarded 6.2% of all penalties in Premier League history. That's an astonishing achievement. We've got to salute you, Mike Dean, uh, for pissing off clearly so many fan bases consistently in your refereeing career. Harry Kane, no mistake, eight goals in eight games versus Arsenal. If only he could play a North London derby every week with Mike Dean as a referee. And Arsenal in that moment, Davo, momentarily looking. Only one adjective really comes to mind. They look so spursy. They'd outplayed them in the first half, and then they're 2-1 down. You kind of thought, oh, I've seen this before. This is going to be uh, it's going to be tough for Arsenal to come back into the game. But Emery is a different man than Wenger. Double change at half-time. Ramsey and Lacazette replaced Iwobi and Mkhitaryan. Bull move, and one that paid off because the impact was immediate and beautiful. Pochettino never truly tactically adjusted to it. We had Hanson Bellerin passing a visionary ball to Ramsey. A flick from him. Brilliant creativity and muscle memory from Ramsey. Never leave Aaron Ramsey. Oh, an over. First time. 10 goals in 10 straight shots. Spanking a stunning exclamation point of a finish. Oh, for a gent who is so confident right now that the shaved stars in the side of his head are the only mistake he's going to make. He's almost become club legend, Aubameyang. He's a player with like swagger. Yes. Rog, this is something when I sent, um, you know, the uh, one of my amazing hosts on Good Morning Football, Nate Burleson, when he were in London doing Good Morning Football over there, he went to his first ever Premier League game. He went to see Arsenal play. And he, I said to him the next morning, how was it? He goes, Obama Young, I like him. He's got <laughs> swag. And he does. He's got swagger. He's got swagger. That's something we haven't seen at Arsenal for a long time, that kind of swagger. Lethal swagger. We've had we've had crazy swagger. We've had Xhaka. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't know if I'm going to hurt the opponent or ourselves, but let's roll. But clinical, lethal, potent swagger. We have not seen that for far too long. And what a move. Three touches, Rog. Three touches from, like, back to front, and they go into the lead. Nipple tingling. Yeah, nipple tingling. One of the best goals. That's that's one of my fake. That's like, poor. that's like a FIFA level Football goal, Rog. You just don't see that very often in real football. But what was astonishing also at this moment, second half, Arsenal were actually outrunning Tottenham Hotspur, who we see as one of the most hard-chasing teams in the Premier League. They were out-stamining them, out-hustling them, outrunning them. And at the close, it was Arsenal who then scored two goals in 2 minutes 45 to finish off the game. Lacazette, after Foyt's mistake, Gave the young Spurs defender his contractually obliged assist. I feel for this kid. It's a bold move for Poch to leave him in uh, with Alderweireld on the bench. Uh, but he is establishing himself as a kind of player Julian Lescott or John Stones, young Stones was at Everton. A young player with a guaranteed mistake in him every single game. And, and you just watch with wonder this climax, this frenetic energy, this North London derby, once again, a heart-pounding mix of skill, tenacity, and total chaos. And above, the, you know, the passion, which was, oh, when your favourite footballer, one of my favourite footballers now, Lucas Torreira, that oh, tiny, angry, pig-in-a-blanket-sized footballer who's just everywhere, just, I mean, just had a game that reminded me, Stevie Gerrard once told me that, when he was coming through, if an opponent had the ball in midfield, it personally insulted him. It got him so angry, he just wanted to destroy them. That is Torreira. And when he scored his first goal for Arsenal, ripped his little shirt off, just sunk his head back in, overwhelmed by emotion uh, after scoring. You just saw a reflection of why we love football, because few things make you feel more alive. Amazing, David.
No, and he's taken over from Tony Adams and Ray Parler as my favourite Arsenal player of all time. <laughs> I think he's just, I think he's phenomenal. I think he's so, so good. He's so un-Arsenal-y. And yes, Emery deserves an enormous amount of credit, but not just for the way he's tactically uh, bringing the most out of his players, tactically managing games. You know, those two substitutions were just <sighs> magnificent, Sublime. Uh, Rog. And, you know, throwing all these fresh forwards. He basically got to throw like four, five forwards on um, and each had them play 45 minutes and, and, and play so well. And Ramsey was like phenomenal. But Torreira, oh, and to have him like, the way he finished that goal, Rog, I don't think he could have scored that goal in any game other than the North London derby. It was a <laughs> North London derby kind of goal. I love him. I love him. I love him. Though my favourite Arsenal footballer of all time is still a toss-up between Javino <laughs> and Marwan Shamak. But the perfect... <laughs> Arsenal weekend. Happiness. Yes, happiness. A statement win for Unai Emery. A buzzing Emirates. A crushing victory in the North London derby. And for once, this is how big it was. Ozil's absence will not grab the headlines. It was a statement win. There is hope abounding again. Arsenal have meaning. There's a point to Arsenal Football Club again. And I love that. The league is much better off with a lethal Arsenal. A big game, big team Arsenal. Rebecca Lowe said it. When they kicked back to her in the studio, she said she didn't know when the Emirates last felt this happy. Arsenal, again, are a big team. Take note, Manchester United on Wednesday. But how do you feel about Tottenham Hotspur, Davo? Third massive game of the week after Chelsea and then Inter. What's your feeling for them? We can overread into one game. This was a game at the Emirates. It was an away game. They went in at halftime in the lead. I think they still deserve a lot of credit. I think the worrying thing for Tottenham is how poor they were defensively and poor they were against the press. A lot of teams are going to look at that and just wonder if they can harry these guys, harry the goalkeeper, harry those defenders and just force them into uh, mistakes. I still think Tottenham are a very good team. I think they played this game 10 times. This would not have been the result 10 times. I think Tottenham would have got something out of this game most of the time. I still think they're a very good team. But we've got quite a few very good teams in the Premier League this season. And once again, we keep on talking about Tottenham. It seems like we have this conversation Every single season, Tottenham at a certain point have got to step up and win silverware to really, for this squad to feel like they've achieved what they're meant to have achieved. You've got to feel for, for, for Tottenham fans. One weekend, you thrash Chelsea and you feel invincible. The next, you, your nose is bloodied by your local rival and you just end the game bedraggled with 10 men limping away, just a head that is full of doubt and darkness incredibly wild swings of searing emotion uh, and proof ultimately uh, that football, especially Premier League football, especially at that top right now with that, with that big five trying to stuff themselves into, into, into four Champions League places, proof that football is just like life. OK, let's get to it. Oh. Liverpool won, Everton nil. A game that truly fulfilled your worldview. There is, it seems, a Cossack behind every door after all, after a lively match in which Everton looked the better team for stretches, long stretches, Rog, mm. only serving to build enough. your hopes up. Jordan Pickford conceded a 96-minute comedy winner. I don't even know it was comedy. I still don't understand it. I've watched it so many times. That involved a Virgil van Dyke <sighs> sliced miss kick with the most bizarre spin on it. It was otherworldly, Rog. It was like mm. Quidditch-like. It hit the top of the bar twice, defying geometry, <laughs> considering the direction it came from. Staying in the field of play... And falling right to Origi. Oh. You've got to read that like it's cool. got two Gs. Who nodded it cool in? Q Jurgen Klopp. His pitch invasion, Rog. 
Ugh. I'm sorry. Take us back to kickoff. Resummon your feelings, and we'll we'll cover the whole game. The keyboardist of Depeche Mode, I think his name was Gore, used to when he recorded occasional songs because he wasn't a lead singer. He'd record it in a studio that was dark, and he'd take his clothes off, record in the nude. For some reason, I feel, I've told that story before, I think. But I'm going to do a gore approach to recording music for this. I'm going to take the lights off, strip down to the nude, and just, just give you it primarily, Dave. So excuse me, this is a very emotional game for me. And emotional because my mood pre-game, I want to be honest with you, I'm not going to be hyperbolic at all in the next 10 minutes. But I was more afraid of this game when I woke up. When I went to bed on Saturday night, to be honest, I was more afraid of Liverpool, Everton, Anfield than the when I saw uh, the when I saw Vladimir Putin and that Saudi Arabian prince high five at the G20 summit. Uh-huh. I mean, I knew that was that was chilling and terrifying that high five, and probably probably signals and a kind of axis of evil that's going to end the world and probably very soon. But to put in perspective, Everton had not won at Anfield since 1999, which is, I looked it up, it's 7,007 days, Dave, to be precise. And I realised it's probably not going to change that, Dave, before the end of the world comes into effect. So that was my mood from before kickoff. Wow. Even on Rog level, that's quite a dark assessment. Because <laughs> it's not only how bad it's going to be for Everton, you're basically saying the world is imminently in danger of ending. Thank you, listeners. Enjoy the pod. I'm more upset about the Everton thing, by the way, <laughs> out of those two, because from the kickoff, Everton was so game for this. Marco Silva's Everton, plucky. We pushed up both flanks with Dinier and Coleman, yet Liverpool asserted a quality up front. They had three chances in the opening 10 minutes on the break. That first half in my game notes, I, I was just like, oh, Jordan Pickford making save after save of his little penis made of gold. <laughs> Felt great, Dave. I, re- I mean, Everton had their opportunities. Beautiful Andre Gomez headed in from close range at Allison. It had to go in this. It had to go in. <sighs> but the goalkeeper has just made himself so big, so bloody brave. I'm not sure if it was a phenomenal save or a terrible miss. You'd probably call it, I thought, a great sis. I've got a whole philosophy of you can score too early. Sometimes you can be too close to the goal. It was almost like from the angles, he was so close to the goal, there was no way that if Alisson made himself big in the centre of the goal, there was just no way for him to get past the keeper. Um, He was too close. He was way too close to score. Too close to score. He knew too much to live. Whatever it was, it was so shattering of my life force, especially when Joe Gomez then just scooped the slop off the line heroically. Oh, my God. Amazing. Off the back of the line. Oh, how did it... I mean, how did that not go in? And the only logical conclusion was to feel like some kind of a character in like an, uh, an Amoraic kind of pre-biblical text or a Norse saga and just wearily declare the gods must be conspiring against us. Have you ever had that feeling mid-game in a game, David, or do you not do that? Yeah, I mean, I've had it in TV where I felt that the game show gods are conspiring against me, but because those are serious ones, the game show gods, they're far more hardcore than the, than the football gods. Merv Griffin! Merv Griffin's conspiring against me! No, he's one of the greats. He's not one of the gods. This game defied geometry throughout the game. That Alisson save, that Joe Gomez back of the goal line clearance, the ultimately what happened in the 96th minute, like everything was, was defying geometry. Euclid was watching this game like from... From, from from upon high, just thinking, oh, this is this is this is challenging with theories. There's there's Rog. Let's make him football's Joe because I knew Davo pretty well from when that oh, 
Gomez could not convert the chance. I knew that for all of our efforts, for all of our heroicism, for all of our our fight, and, and you have to compare this performance to just the dark, negative pessimism under Sam Allardyce, three derbies and an FA Cup debacle in which we mustered four shots on target. I mean, just the fear uh, with which we took the field in those days. And indeed, not just under Allardyce, but overall as an Evertonian, my dominant emotion during an Anfield derby is akin to that of a of a gentleman who's been placed under the blade of a guillotine and is waiting just for their miserable existence to be snuffed out. That's how I feel whenever Everton play at Anfield. But Marco Silva, he's made us feel real hope. He's made us feel that we can do anything. And I knew that buying into that meant because we suddenly had something to lose, this was going to be the fall, which was inevitable, was going to be all the more excruciating. We crash from a greater height. And sometimes in life, you can be numb because you don't feel anything. In this game, the second half, the last 30 minutes, I was just numb because I felt too much. I was just in a puddle in front of my kids, on the floor, a puddle made of, of, of fear and hope and bud and a little bit of urine. Ultimately, I was watching the end of this game, Rog, and I was thinking, God, Roger's going to be in a really good mood at the way to Everton. He's yes. going to nil-nil. Roger's going to feel really good. Roger's going to come on the pod. I was thinking, how am I going to counter Roger's newfound optimism? Probably by reminding you of your constant pessimism. But it's a. But I just felt like you would feel really good about the way that Everton played in this game, the way they handled it. They had, I think they had the bulk of the chances. Yes. Um, and they were brave. They were, they brave. were tenacious. Very brave. They had courage. And every Liverpool attack, every Liverpool substitution. So you're feeling positive. Every in that end game, every Liverpool substitution, especially when they brought on their Deadwood Sturridge, and then Origi, who I think they yanked out of witness protection just brought dark memories, searing memories of goals Liverpool conjure at the last, crosses into the box headed home by unlikely goal scorers, Dirk Coit, long-range bombs, from old players like Gary McAllister. I have died a thousand deaths in this game, and I will take them to my grave. I did, though, I will admit, around the 92nd minute, I started to exhale, started to end my game notes, and I started to think about what a different proposition we are now as a club. All the things I care about in life and in football, tenacity, courage, ultimately that's what matters. And I felt, I felt, I texted my Everton supporting mate, Jamie. I, I texted, I'll take nil-nil, I'll take nil-nil. To be honest, I would have bitten your hand off if someone had offered me a one-nil loss before the game. I would have snapped your hand off. And he wrote back, ha, 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 ha. But then a sheer horror unfurled itself. What happened, David? What happened? Because I do not understand it. I can tell you when, when Virgil van Dijk on the volley shanked the ball skywards, my kids who I was watching the game with, they all went, Wee-hey! And, and the Everton fans at the stadium, they all laughed too. It's one of those where you just like, the whole crowd let out for a collective relief. That's not going to hurt us. What happened? Uh, I got to tell you, I was watching a few minutes behind uh, on my DVR and I got a text from about two minutes into uh, injury time from our great friend, uh, GFOP, uh, Michael Bloom, Bloomface, former Fox Sports executive, now current ten, uh, Turner executive, Liverpool fan. Made being Liverpool. Made being Liverpool. Gave the world the great being Liverpool. Yeah, and he, he just texted me, wow, that is the definition of in the face. And I was like, oh no, oh no. And I fast forwarded to go and uh, watch uh, the ending to go and find out what he was talking about. I mean, first of all, the the slice from Van Dyke. I don't know what kind of English the Dutchman was putting on the ball there, but it was it was otherworldly uh, what <laughs> happened to that ball and the spin inflicted in it. Now Jordan Pickford, not and we've discussed before, not the tallest of goalkeepers, and he even appears to be shorter 
than his actual height. It was like a centre fielder who let a lazy fly ball get lost in the light. That's what it looked like. But if, if the ball sort of, you'd just think, with the momentum of the ball going forward, if the ball hits any less than 270 uh. degrees or... I don't know, what is it, 45 degrees up from that? It's like less than 300 degrees onto that crossbar. You sort of feel that it has to go over the bar. It has to, like, continue its forward momentum and go over the bar and uh. out of play. But this ball seemed to go onto the top of the bar yeah. and stay there, bounce That's up the... in the air and stay there again. So Pickford, of course, wasn't to know, was it going to come down on his side or the other side? He seemed to mistime his jump somehow. Maybe he touched a little... He didn't touch it. He didn't touch it. He joe-hearted it. He bloody joe-hearted it. I don't know what that means, but he did the worst possible thing in the dark situation. He, he, he kind of joe-hearted the ball back onto the bar, not over it, but off it. And who did it be? It had to be. It had to be. Origi, just the most impotent striker in modern Liverpool history to deliver the blade. I mean, and by the way, noted, even with the goal at his mercy, he couldn't get his head on it. He had to shoulder it bloody home. That's how good he is. But it was the kind of goal you just do not see. You just do not see that goal in football. It's an under-11 primary school special, that goal. You probably Fair. see it on playing fields up and down. Uh, up and down Britain in under 11 games. I feel like I've seen that goal a few times. Which made it made it hurt so much more than that Mo Salah wonder goal. That I can take. That I can take. This. I mean, my eight-year-old turned to me in the moment with tears in his eyes and just crumpled in my arms and whispered in my ear. Whispered. I mean, he said, that was the cruelest buzzer beater I have ever seen. And it was a cruel buzzer beater. I mean, in his whole innocent eight years, that was the cruelest he's ever seen. I'm a terrible dad. I'm a terrible dad for making him feel those feelings by forcing him to, to, to take this on in life. And it would get worse for Roger Klopp decides to run on the field in triumph, hugging Allison, And the commentators immediately, that was a disgrace. I mean, I've been trying to think about this and I'd love to hear what you think. I would say if it was Mourinho, we would all feel definitely that this was a disgrace to, if you didn't see it, Klopp ran across the midfield, jumped into his goalkeeper's arms while the game was uh, still a live game. I've got a feeling we're going to feel differently about this one though, David. I think if it was Mourinho, you're absolutely right. The people would be calling him, Liverpool fans especially, would be calling for him to be banned from football, especially if it happened against them. My problem is not actually the passion that has him run onto the pitch and, and hug his goalkeeper. I know you're not allowed to do it and he will no doubt be, be censured for that. It's not that. What I really loathe is the lack of ownership of that moment at the end. It's fair. Telling the media that he apologised to Marco Silva, which clearly he didn't, or didn't do in a way that Marco Silva actually received it, which is the whole point of an apology. Somebody has to hear it when you apologise and actually feel that you're apologising. And second, the whole, yes, well, it happened, the whole thing. It's like, you've got to own it. I cannot stand it when people don't own the mistakes they made and the, the things they go and do, which are incendiary in nature, and just like heat up football fans and just heat up these passions and it shows so little respect for his opponents so little respect for the game and he's just got to own it and say he just lost control in that moment and he did it instead he just does that little shrug and that ploppian kind of smirk and like oh my passion and da, 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 da. and I honestly I can't stand it and Mauricio Sarri by the way has shone a new light and I'm not saying this because he's a Chelsea manager believe me Chelsea managers have done appalling things in the past but Mauricio Sarri you look at the way that he owned when his own assistant celebrated in front of Jose Mourinho and the way he owned that moment post-match in terms of the way he handled the system, the way he handled the apology, the way he handled it with the press. Absolutely. Just own it, honestly. Just own it. You just won the derby. Own it. And he just didn't own it. And I don't like that. 
I feel a bit differently, to, to be honest. In the moment, because to me, context is everything. And I would be annoyed if Mourinho did it, but context is, is everything. And I understand it like, to me, as an Evertonian, I took it as a symbol of pride, a symbol of how hard Liverpool had to work, how good we had been. And we had been good. And I do take that out of the game. Everton had been bloody good. And also how much Liverpool wanted and needed this. Uh, you know, the derby is, was massive when I was a kid. It's become lesser. It's become a routine Anfield three points for Liverpool. And in this race to catch those droids at Manchester City within the heightened emotion of the derby, I kind of understood it all. I will say it hurt like hell. As I become older, football, for me, and we've talked about this, become less about the week-to-week results. You know, I become inured to them. More about past emotions, shared memories, just a collective, deeply felt memory bank of wonder. And that, despite that, I will say this loss truly, 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 truly hurt. I was truly devastated. And, and the killer stat is Liverpool have scored more post-90th minute winners against Everton than any side in Premier League history, which is now five. A fraction of the number they've scored like that on an almost nightly basis in my feverish dreams. And when I took my oldest kids, two of them, to Liverpool's 2-1 win in the FA Cup semi-final in 2012 which they lost in a dark way. As we left Wembley, we passed a fat, drunk Everton fan who was urinating on the outside wall of Wembley. And as we walked past, he just screamed at us. He goes, oh my God, how do they always find a way to do us? And in this game, my God, they found a way to do us that knocked me clean off my feet. The other derby, Chelsea 2, Fulham nil. Uh, Claudio Ranieri returns to Chelsea for a West London derby and sees a spirited performance from his Cotideros full short, a fourth-minute goal from Pedro and an 82nd-minute effort from the notorious RLC, the pride of South London, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. They move uh, Mauricio Sarri's mob into third place. An early goal to soothe the wounds left by last weekend's Tottenham beatdown. But watching this, I mean, thank God for Chelsea, it was just Fulham, who were more organised under Ranieri, or I will say... Oh, did wear a very fetching Czech blazer. But Chelsea still seem unbalanced in midfield, Dave. This, this Ungolo Kante, the most talented piece of flapping skin in the Premier League still. Well, I think there's, um, there's that. Ungolo Kante still like trying to find his position within Sarri Ball. David Luiz, as I predicted, selected again, despite uh, his performances over the last few weeks. And there's something, it's really more to me about the Chelsea spine. It's about central midfield. It's about... You know, central defence. It's even about Kepa here and there, even though he made a couple of good saves in this one. Um, this is, the team just doesn't feel like it's got that spine. I think the reintroduction of Pedro was excellent. It gave the team more energy uh, from the off, and that's who scored the um, first goal, a very Pedro-like goal. Oh, honey, I shrunk the Pedro. And, you know, Ruben Loftus-Cheek scores at the end. Chelsea had some other chances, but, you know, Fulham look more organised. They're getting a, a new manager bounce. I think they're playing less naive Premier League football um, under Claudio Ranieri, which is something that you know a lot of uh, Ranieri observers will be surprised that I'm saying. Chelsea's still unsyncopated, and yet they still sit in the table above their North London rivals. And, um, you know, who knows? They've gone through a dip in form. We'll see where they go for the rest of the season. The Kante thing's weird to me. He keeps being singled out by the single-minded Sarri, despite the, the, the great play on that first goal. You know, it's always a challenge for managers. Do you play the players that fit your system or tweak your system to play the players at your disposal? And I will say, we've seen Kante play the role of three men in that defensive shield, trying to turn him into an attacking force. It's kind of like taking an incredible catcher and deciding, nope, he's going to be our shortstop. And I don't understand why you keep him. You should sell him 
for a fortune and get the players you do want for your system. But to see this awkward conversion of him into something he's not is one of the oddest things I've seen uh, in a long, long time. We should know Loftus-Cheek wrapped up the points, now scored five goals in his last six. What does a Loftus-Cheek need to do to get a start? Dave out. I don't know. Uh, I hope he can get a start. I think he's looking lively. He's a player that defenders just hate having to deal against. Rival midfielders hate having to deal against. I think he's really coming to his own this season. Certainly for a a boy who joined the club at eight years old, the fans want that connection to the academy, to the past. And, you know, Ruben Loftus-Cheek is the fans' favourite right now. The answer to the question, how does a Loftus-Cheek get a start? The answer, sadly, is move to Bournemouth. Or Palace, Rog. Southampton 2, Man United 2. United stumbled in post-Jose Mourinho's Champions League water bottle smashing antics against young boys. And things aren't any rosier after this tale of two halves in one half. The Saints stormed out to a (laughs) 2-0 lead in the first 20 minutes thanks to an Inverness blast from Scott Stewart Armstrong and an inch-perfect free kick from Cedric Suarez. But United stormed back before halftime on the shoulders of young Marcus Rashford, who set up Romelu Lukaku, the big Belgian's first since September 15th, and Ander Herrera, Rog. Neither team found a way through after the interval. United are seventh in the table, but still top of the back pages. Southampton in 18th, Rog. Sacked their manager, Mark Hughes, after this one, after just three wins in this last 22 matches. Their weight announcement of a new gaffer, uh, Berhalter, no longer available. Oh. Who will it be, David? Maybe they'll take Arena. Southampton, so beleaguered, so bereft of hopes. Of course they'd surge into the lead against United. Oh, that little Armstrong with the goal. A small step for man, a giant step for man United kind. Then a stunning second, Suarez lashing the ball home. Even Southampton treat United like Ralph Wiggum. No fear, no respect. You look at the list of teams who have scored twice against United this season in the first half alone. West Ham, Newcastle, Brighton, now Southampton. I mean, it's astonishing, Dave, to, to watch. All Jose can do is go through his kind of greatest hits of sour and angry faces. Paul Pogba carelessly gives away possession. Screaming Jose. Rashford blasts over. Head in hands, Jose. Ashley Yang hoists ball out of bounds. How do I work with such incompetence, Jose? That back line was breached so many times. You, you kind of think, oh... The Starwood reservation system's got better defences than Manchester United. Once again, this sort of like collective... Inertia. I mean, I don't know what it is. Like inertia, ennui. There's something going on in this team. It's just so odd that the sum of the parts, so much less than the individuals involved, only feeling like they can really play football when they're 2-0 down, Rog. When they get punched in the face, it's the only time they actually feel up for it. It's the way they like it. And the second half... Incident-free, joyless, United, three wins in their last eight. So little urgency, so little leadership. They almost seemed happy, the players, content to get a point at Southampton. They're now 16 points back from City so early in the season. Honestly, also runs with Mourinho saying Pogba's a virus post-game. You've got Arsenal on Wednesday, game against Liverpool looming. We had a great exchange this week where I was talking about, this is just so predictable and so dark, but you texted me back. I never want him to leave. No, never want him to leave. He's just the greatest entertainment of all time. There's so much to talk about uh, with him. And I just hope he ends up at Burnley, you know, and I could sort of feel it happening. He'll get sacked. He'll figure out how to, like, find the story. He'll want to stay in England. He might go off to the continent for a little while and take some team to, like, win the Europa League or even, like, on a run in the Champions League. And then he'll be back. 
I'll tell you what I really hope for is Everton. I want Everton more than anything. Oh, please, please, please. Don't. You know, Everton or Burnley, I can imagine he'll get vindication. I can imagine a press conference where he goes, it's so real here. Life's authentic. I've just found myself again. A simple, he'll start selling products on Goop. He'll become a new man. I can see it all day. But go to Burnley, Joe say, go to Burnley. Man City 3, Bournemouth 1. Despite the scriptwriters trying to manufacture a storyline by leaving this game tied at halftime thanks to a Bernardo Silver strike and a Callum Wilson snap header. City pull away in the second half. The catalyst, Raz, Rog, oh. who frankly bossed the game, including a 57th minute goal. Gundogan added the third. Bournemouth have now lost each of their last four games. But despite playing very good football, City stay top. I mean, but yawn, yawn. Yeah, it is yawned it. I mean, under strength in this one, lacking the dented Cunaguero, but another game, another opponent overwhelmed, scoring early, and after a brief wobble, scoring often, uh, and even far from their best. I find it hard to watch them because you know the result. There's no suspense, there's no drama, there's no real challenge. It's a bit like playing FIFA at amateur level. The goals flow, but the games lack. The games lack drama, David. Do you find it boring watching this? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's... Unfortunately, Man City, I loved watching Raz boss that game in the second half. I thought that was phenomenal. And I think Raz is truly turning into a world-class player. I love that. But Man City do not, they're not an electrifying, I don't know what it is, because they do play electrifying football and somehow it's not electrifying. It's almost like watching somebody else play FIFA where they're really good at it and they've got an amazing team, but you don't really like watching the football. Yeah, it's like eating fine dark chocolate with an infinite supply. It's amazing if you only get a little nugget, but if you can eat it all the time, it just gets boring. Quickly makes you feel sick. And watching City, this perfect, this free of error, this luxurious. When I watch them, my mind wanders, and I think this is how it's going to feel in the future when we only ever make love to sex robots. And I don't know what that is exactly going to feel like, but I just hope, I just hope, and if you're listening manufacturers of sex robots please make my sex robot look just like david silver (laughs) (laughs) crystal no comment roger i'm not going there crystal palace to burnley nil up the palace and mean it eagles rule over struggling burnley in this one a textbook crot from james MacArthur in the 16th minute and an andros townsend wonder stonker yes i just said an andros townsend wonder stonker ends palace's Eight-game winless streak. They move into 14th place. Burnley, meanwhile, need to get their groove back, Rog. Winless in their last seven and down in 19th place. Get Jose Mourinho in now, Burnley. He'll solve everything. Palace made 29 shots rain down on poor Joe Hart's goal. And not just that, but Andros Townsend had both an assist and used up the rest of his season's allotments of goals in the same game thanks to his second-half miniature work of art. And I'm delighted for Palace, delighted for Palace fans. Up the Palace and mean it. And again, if you want to understand the essence of true love of Crystal Palace and for football in general, tune in for Paul Greengrass on Wednesday. Up the Palace. Leicester 2, Watford nil. A Jamie Vardy penalty hit like he was smashing a punching bag at the county fair. An incredible creative virtuoso effort from a player so good they named a small Virginia liberal arts college after him, James Madison. <laughs> See the Foxes get their first home league win since September. They're up to eighth place, Rog. Oberlin. No, no, James Madison, Rog. <laughs> Go on. Newcastle nil. West Ham three. Two goals from L3 layup specialist uh, Javier Chicharito <laughs> Hernandez and a Felipe Anderson injury time effort end the Toons three-game winning streak. The win moves the Manuel Pellegrini's breakdance crew up to 13th. Uh, obviously, Portly Rodge 
Uh, Rog, he needs Newcastle to lose a few games, so expectations come down again. <laughs> Huddersfield 1, Brighton 2. The Terriers took the lead just 55 seconds in when Matthias Jurgensen scored the fastest goal in the Premier League season so far. But the game turned when Steve Mounier was sent off for a high challenge on Eve Basuma. Harsh. Looked a bit harsh, Rog. Looked a, definitely a bit harsh. Brighton then hit back behind goals from Shane Duffy and Romanian wonder uh, Florin and an A, they move up to 11th place. Cardiff 2, Wolves 1. Neil Warnock's men come back from a goal down to hand Nuno and co. Their fifth defeat in six matches. And two on the run to fellow newly promoted Fulham and Cardiff. After goals from Ireland's Matt Doherty and Iceland's Erin Gunnison left the teams knotted at one. It was Justin Trudeau's favourite Premier League footballer, Canadian, Junior Hoylet. He won it for the Bluebirds. This was an absolute stonker, Rod and Andros Townsend-level stonker. Cardiff now turtle-heading out of the relegation zone in 16th place. Nuno admitted his Wolves are, quote, not in a good moment, a.k.a. one point out of the last 18. And here they just seem confused, anxious, bleeding in confidence and impotent in the final third. They have rocked some of the biggest clubs in the Premier League and then faltered against middling and lesser foe this season here and done by Cardiff. Junior Hoyler, if you've not seen that goal, see that goal straight out of Brampton, Ontario. Oh, and it gave Neil Warnock... My mate, the perfect 70th birthday present. Neil, you don't look a day over 85. Okay, in MLS. We are now less than a week from MLS Cup final, Rog. Pitting. (gasps) Can you feel it? Pitting Portland Timbers against second season wonders Atlanta United FC. After a scoreless first leg, the Timbers defeated Sporting KC 3-2 in Kansas City, thanks in part to one of the goals of the season from Sebastian Blanco. And in the East, Atlanta came to New York with a 3-0 lead and advanced 3-1 on aggregate. We're braced for an MLS Cup final for the ages, Rog. Oh, yeah. Though at first, as an Everton fan, I need to send my love to Red Bulls supporters. An MLS regular season record for points set by your team. Yes, you won a third supporter shield in six years. Yes. But once again, all that momentum disintegrates so cruelly in the playoffs. There is a quote from the life of Pi that I relate to, and I think you will too, Red Bulls listeners. When you've suffered a great deal in life, each additional pain is both unbearable and trifling. But well done, Atlanta. I I did love the tweet by Pablo Maura, who said, real tough blow for Red Bulls fans, but you guys can take comfort in knowing that these lifelong Atlanta United supporters have waited an entire year and a half for this. Oh, it is going to be magnificent, Dave. It is going to be a final like no other. Huge respect to Portland, a footballing dynasty, we can almost say now on the men's and women's side. And that Blanco goal, I've scored thousands in my dreams, but none quite as good as that. I can't wait for the final. Football's coming home. That home is going to be delirious at Atlanta United after a season of wonders from... Uh, you know, you look at that team, you, you listen to the podcast we did with Darren Hale. So much can be learned by so many from what they've done. The passion, the commotion, the delirium, the smell of Waffle House faintly just fanning out over that field with 70,000 plus cheering on an MLS Cup final. It's going to make next Saturday a historic one for football in the United States. Midweek Premier League fixtures are back and they look like this, Roger. It kicks off this Tuesday with Watford hosting Man City at 3pm Eastern Time. And then Wednesday, it's Man United versus Arsenal at 3pm Eastern Time. That is followed by the Men in Blazers show with special guest Paul Greengrass at 5.30pm Eastern. And Rog, let's have a prophetic shot of Jägermeister to see what's going to happen in these midweek games. 
Oh, I need this Jägermeister, Davis. Sometimes Jägermeister is just an exclamation point that just thrills you. Sometimes it picks you up when you feel life needs just oh, an adrenaline shot. And I'm going to take it. <laughs> oh, God, this shot tells me, Dave, about Arsenal, Manchester United, Jose Mourinho, future Burnley manager, never better than when his back is against the wall and the wolves are at the door and other assorted cliches are circling all around him. I expect him to piss in Unai Emery's punch. Brace yourself for a late Fellaini controversial winner, controversial's redundant, and some classless on-the-whistle antics from Jose. I see United winning 2-1. That's a shot of Jägermeister. You know my saying, Rog. <laughs> underestimate Jose Mourinho at your own peril. That doesn't apply here. Go ahead and underestimate him. I like Arsenal getting all three points at Old Trafford. Save your telegrams, United fans. This is not me talking. It's the Jägermeister. <laughs> there are many ways to connect to us, including our now extinct Amazon Emporium, which has transformed into the Men in Blazers Board Mart. Anytime you buy something big or small from the Board Mart, we get a tiny percentage that allows us to produce additional, albeit suboptimal content. What are you putting in the Board Mart this week, Roger? A book. Certain American States by Catherine Lacey. A book of short stories, wonderfully deaf short stories, stuffed with searingly astute emotional observations and true wit about humans, about humans' desperate need for relationships and the ultimate loneliness. The characters in this collection, they are all a bit like me, disappointed with life and afraid of death. Ordinary pain fills this book. And I I read an interview with the author. She explained her focus as, as being that beneath our lives there's the physical rhythm of our existence, yet we want to ignore it because it's too upsetting to acknowledge the sort of temporary bloody mess that is your life. I love that kind of approach to life. And if you're nodding too, you're probably an Everton Spurs or Georgia fan. This magnificent book, it's going to help heal you. I hope it'll help heal you, making you realise the feelings you're experiencing, you're not alone in them. Uh, Rog, before the pod uh, every week, you laugh at me, slash get a little aggravated me as I'm crunching my cereal down the mic. Uh, into your ears and I thought oh, you might be interested in the, in, in the cereal that I enjoy in the morning in the crap part of West Hollywood please I enjoy cereals made by a company called Kashi K-A-S-H-I it's their Go Lean original cereal plant protein and multi-grain cereal with fiber and a tiny little touch of honey to keep me so sweet Rod. 12 grams of protein 13 grams of fiber 8 grams of whole grains in every serving I don't like eating a lot of breakfast Rog but it's when you thing. do I like it just a banana a little like double espresso and a bowl of cashy goline available at all fine uh, food markets. Can I put in a word for Siggy's Icelandic skier <laughs> and two boiled eggs while we're plugging our breakfast? That is the breakfast of kings. I also want to plug uh, oh, a, a shoe that's changed my life this week. Glareps of Gotland's low slipper boots. I'm very interested <laughs> in slippers. Because I saw a man urinate on, uh, several times this week outside my apartment on the street quite brazenly. So I've started to invest in an indoor shoe because I don't want to bring his urine into my house. I just say, Glareps, of De- they are, you are amazing. You are the best things out of Denmark since Christian Eriksen. While we're plugging crap, Merritt Paulson pod special. Portlanders, Merritt Paulson pod special for the MLS Cup final dropping. I hope tomorrow if J-Dubs and I can, can stay out right. But God, I'm looking forward to that, David. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Men in Blazers at MC Davies at Roger Bennett on Instagram at Men in Blazers at MC underscore Davies on Facebook. It's uh, Men in Blazers. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at Men in Blazers at gmail.com. We wrote a book, Rog. It's terrible. I'm not sure if you've heard Encyclopedia Blazers. Very good. Oh, good Christmas gift. Good holiday gift, Rog. A good uh, Hanukkah for, gift. Happy good, Hanukkah. Yeah, for any holiday that you may be celebrating. Very good for secret Santas also. Fenderpunk, Rog. War pig. Who wants the sex matombo? I like snacks. Balls win, balls win. Take that, Gloria. Balls lose. To tweed. Abrogado, rock on, mate. Kung fu fight in America. Love you, Davo. Love you, Rog. Sorry about Everton. I feel better for speaking to you, though. Don't repress it. Let it out, people. And Joe say, get thee to Burnley. Congratulations, Greg. Go. <laughs>